Blog Talk Radio. At Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us, host a show, or be a guest, or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E presents Healing Conversations, featuring your host, Mildred Lynn McDonald. Hello, everybody. This is Mildred Lynn McDonald, and I'm your host for Healing Conversations today, live from Sebastopol. And this morning, we're going to have a very interesting roundtable that basically stopped me in my tracks. But before we go on to that, I'd like to welcome my three co-hosts, John Caracella. Good morning. Deb Caracella. Good morning. And Hi C. Lettimers. Hello. Now, this is what really hit me. Pain that is not transformed is transmitted. The question I would love to throw out to John and Deb and Hi C. is this. How do we transmit pain to others? And the second part, how do we transform pain within ourselves? So who would like to jump in there? I'll go first. Okay. I'll use a very in-the-moment immediate example. A friend of mine has many medical conditions and is in the hospital and in a nursing home and all sorts of things. And the place where she was living... The man there also had all sorts of medical issues and things, and he's now gone into the hospital, which means he's not going to be able to come back home, which means she also can't come back home. His family, as well as my friend's friends, are suddenly given the burden of figuring out how to deal with all of the stuff, the financial situations, selling the house, and all of that with no information and no preparation that was done ahead of time. And so, to me, this is an example of how pain, when people don't want to transform it, which means I don't want to deal with it, or I don't want to work with it, or I'm just angry about it, it gets transmitted, and in this case, gets transmitted onto the shoulders of other people. Because they have not been willing to talk about their pain or face the reality of their pain and therefore make proper preparations or talk to other people about what they would like to have done or needs to be done or put things in place. So it now becomes a painful situation that is transmitted to other people to take on and to deal with, as well as the pain that those people are going through themselves. So to me, that would be an example of how pain, when it's not transformed, which means worked with, sat with, healed, dealt with, made peace with, whatever, gets transmitted, sometimes not just transmitted in ourselves, but also transmitted onto other people. As you were speaking, a question came to me. Do you feel that the parties involved 
are present enough with the situation that they realize that they might be transmitting or transmuting the pain? No. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a big part of the of the challenge because you can't transform a pain that you don't understand or recognize. And this happens a lot, you know, when we have blind spots. Transgenerational, intergenerational pain, intergenerational wounds are typically those kinds of things where you see these patterns that run in families and they get transmitted from grandfather to father to son. And I know this is true. There was anger and frustration in my family that I experienced when I was young. And I transmitted that same kind of anger and frustration through my household onto my children. If you don't understand that you're experiencing something that can be healed, then it's very difficult for you to take the steps to heal it. You know, we often have the the notion that this is just the way life is and that it's normal. And this doesn't have to be normal, but you wouldn't know because it's a blind spot, right? So oftentimes I think we transmit pain that we don't understand we have we don't understand its source and as a result are unable to effectively unwind it, to heal the wound. And I, and I think that is pretty common. If you were aware of the pain that you were in and the pain you were transmitting, would you have reacted differently? Oh, I think without a doubt, if one gets to the place where they're aware of the pain that they're transmitting onto others, and they're the least bit compassionate, you know, you're like, oh, I don't, don't want to be doing that. Yeah, so certainly for me, if I, had, if I had the wherewithal to understand what was going on inside of me, I certainly would not have wanted to visit that pain upon my children. No way. And once you did realize it, was that accompanied with a sense of shock or relief? Hell. It was my introduction to hell. Because... The hardest thing for me to do is to forgive myself for the pain that I visited upon the people I love. And so it was great to know what was going on, but then I had to look at the consequences of my actions. You know, it's like being lost in the woods, come out of the woods and you can finally see clearly, only to realize you have a cliff face that you have to climb. So, it, you know, it's not exactly relief. I wouldn't say it was relief. I would say it was an opportunity to breathe, take stock, and reformulate my plan. How about you, Deb? Any thoughts to add to that? Or So I think maybe I'll address physical pain and how it is also difficult. It's extremely draining, and sometimes you're not even aware of how much energy and attention and concentration is being sucked away by the physical pain in the body. And some people are very stoic and very understanding about the pain within themselves. It is a part of their life. There's perhaps not... Anything that can be done about that particular pain at the moment, either there's not an answer medically or the answers from the medical community, they just haven't solved this particular issue for this particular person. 
but you still have that pain. It is there. It is a part of your being. And you are not you alone anymore. You are now you and your pain. So how you are able to interact and how you're able to deal with others is affected. It's compromised in a way. And some people are still able to understand that and make a space for it within themselves and be able to deal with life and its necessities and the people that they meet. Those are the people that they handled their cancer with amazing grace or some semblance of extraordinary ability. And people speak of them in the most generous of terms. Then there are others. I think it's so hard and so draining that they become difficult. They become irritable. They become not the kind of individuals that you want to spend your time with. And you might not know that that's why they are the way they are. They haven't shared that they're in pain. You find them to be not pleasant. Maybe just the awareness, the inner awareness of how pain is affecting you and what it's doing and your response to it could perhaps help people to realize how they are then interacting with others in their lives, either their family members who perhaps are attempting to help them and, and provide assistance or their friends who are concerned about them or even just strangers that you meet. And I think that what you just said is exactly right, but I think it also points to the quote that Mildred started with of pain that is not transformed is transmitted. And mm -hmm. it's being able to recognize, even if somebody is in physical pain, the people that say, I don't want to be around that person because it's just too negative, too caustic, too difficult, whatever. It's because that other person has not transformed their experience of the pain into something that is a reality they can talk about versus is something that they feel completely victimized by and now have to transmit that victimization to the world around them. It's just a different relationship with the pain. You know, I'm not going to deny someone the opportunity or the reality of the fact of the pain that they live in, even if they want to sit there and they need to talk about how much pain. When I say, you know, so how are things going today? And they need to talk for 15 minutes about what's been going on for them. But that's one thing compared to somebody who is constantly just angry or spewing or creates that caustic environment because they want everyone else to feel their pain and to feel as miserable as they do rather than to simply accept that their pain is a reality for them and they can talk about it and no one's going to judge them for that. But they don't need to transmit that pain onto others as a way of somehow making themselves seemingly, they think, feel better. I have a little saying that I share with people when they come to me for healing work. And there's two kinds of pain. There's pain where healing is occurring and pain where healing is not occurring. And obviously, you get to choose which kind of pain more often than not. And the process of dealing with pain, like when you're doing yoga or you're doing physical therapy, and you reach the point of pain in an experience, doing that well, doing that right, allows you to come into communication with the parts of your body that that need repair. It's amazing how much 
power we have, how, how plastic our bodies are when we are willing to go to the place of the pain and be with it in a non-judgmental and constructive way. We so often we numb the pain instead of communicating with it and communing with it. And when we numb it, we can't heal it. But when we are present to it, there's at least the possibility that the pain can be healed. And, you know, I mentioned two physical examples, but there's lots of truth to this in the emotional space as well. When I read that statement, pain that is not transformed is transmitted, or as we added on, is transmuted, it enabled me to look at my life in its entirety and identify periods where I was in pain, maybe conscious or subconscious about the pain or the amount of pain. And it let me look at where did I choose to put that pain? Where did I choose to run away from that pain? Where did I choose to numb out that pain? And when I read it, I felt a huge sense of relief because I thought, okay, now I have a structure and I can build something into my filter for the world that will enable me to understand when I'm in pain where I choose to put it. So building on that, wondering if we could each share an example of how we might choose to transform pain within ourselves. Very recently, I was walking the cliffs in Santa Cruz, enjoying the evening, the full moon, nice breeze. It was a beautiful evening, but I was cold, and I didn't want to give up on being outside. I've been working on this cold sensitivity thing that seems to be part of me, making great progress. And here's what I realized. I was cold. I was experiencing pretty significant discomfort. But I realized, hey, I'm not going to die, right? This is not going to kill me. So whatever it is I'm experiencing, I'm experiencing discomfort. But I don't need to be afraid of it. And so I allowed myself to experience the discomfort, literally identify where in my body I was feeling some sense of discomfort. And I allowed myself to feel that discomfort. And then I said, okay, well, what can I do to make that part of my body feel better? And it wasn't necessarily that I needed to make myself feel warmer. I just needed to address the actual discomfort that was in my back. And I did some stretching and I did some breathing and just some basic self-maintenance, self-care, And within two or three minutes, I was completely fine. I wasn't any warmer necessarily, but I wasn't in discomfort anymore because I allowed the discomfort to fully register in my consciousness and I started to take care of it. In the process of doing that, I realized something, that we have a tendency to be defensive about our wounds. We don't want anybody to know what wounds we have because we're afraid that they're going to poke them. So we kind of contract around our pain and we sort of try to shield ourselves. And I think that's exactly the wrong thing to do. If you can acknowledge that you have a wound, that you have pain, and do the appropriate things to nurture yourself, then you only defend that wound when you're actually in a place where it's being attacked as opposed to expecting it to be attacked and contracting around it, which makes it really hard to heal. What was the pain that you chose to transform? And from that transformation, what did you transmit outward or or inward? Okay, so the the discomfort that I changed was this discomfort of being cold. 
the result of that was that I was a beacon of joy because I was outside under the moonlight by the surf for all that time. What about you, Deborah? Hi, C. Well, I can give a couple of examples, one on the more emotional level and one on the more physical level. From an emotional level, I think that one way we see the transformation of pain is, let's say someone comes from an abusive background, whether it's as a child or as a spouse or something like that, they may then be able to take that pain and it becomes a motivating and driving force for them to start a foundation to help other abused people, to open a shelter for abused people. So instead of simply living their lives defined as the victim and basically giving giving in to the pain of what was done to them, they are able to transform that pain into something that is not only healing and beneficial for them as a way of working through that pain, but to also then become something that is beneficial for others who may also be experiencing pain that is in some way similar to or related to what it is that they went through. And from a physical standpoint, and I thought of this as John was talking about walking on the cliff, I, I had a whole image of where he was going to go with that, which he did not. Because um, <laughs> for me, it was, you know, walking on the cliff and you suddenly stumble and twist your ankle. Well, now, instead of being able to do that power hike and do that 15 miles that you were going to do and everything else, you're suddenly forced to perhaps go much more slowly. And so the transformation of the pain is the pain causes you to slow down or to stop and to be able to take in what's around you or appreciate the walk, even though you only go half a mile instead of 15 miles, but you suddenly discovered trees or animals or flowers or something on the walk or a view that you would have never taken notice of if you had been on that power hike going at full speed trying to get the 15 mile done with that the only focus rather than paying attention to what's around you for me from some recent emotional distress in my life the pain and the discomfort and the unhappiness that came of the situation that i was in was very real instead of dealing with all of it by myself i allowed myself to become something that I typically do not allow. I allowed myself to become vulnerable. I shared. I shared with friends. I shared with family. And I allowed the sharing to give me courage, to provide support, to really bolster my inner core. Instead of deciding that all of this had to be dealt with by myself, and on my own, without any outside help, I chose to experience this particular episode of pain with community. It was probably one of the wisest decisions that I could make because it certainly allowed me to surface in a more timely, less painful manner than it would have otherwise. What I found about transforming pain within myself is, number one, I have to laugh at myself because I'm a Leo. And as I've been told, there's nothing more comical than a Leo with a thorn in their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so my Achilles heel is that 
I'm sensitive and my feelings can get hurt. So what do I do with that pain? Normally, I withdraw. I withdraw and I go into my little cave and I lick my wounds <laughs> and wail to myself because, of course, I've withdrawn. What I've learned is that because it is true we can't transform the pain, I realized that I have the power within me to shift that energetic vibration. And I have the power within me to make a choice to have a healthier coping mechanism. And what now what I choose to do, how I use that power within me, is I choose to take myself to neutral. And I choose to say to myself, well, there's obviously something here that I don't understand or I'm missing. So that's where I go. And for the listeners out there who have thorns in their paws, I speak from the voice of experience. When you feel yourself getting hurt, and maybe you overreact to it and have a tendency to withdraw, I'd love to invite you not to do that, but to shift yourself into a place of neutral and simply say, well, obviously there's something I don't understand here. And from that perspective, you're transmitting opportunities and possibilities that you wouldn't have if you retreated licking your paw to your cave. So that's where I usually go. That's good, Madrona. I like that. I would love to talk about this some more because I feel like we're having a really good conversation here. We have to move on. So I'd like to thank John mm-hmm. and Hi C and Deb for showing up, being present, being honest, and providing some excellent guidance for our listeners out there. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Have a great one, Miller You're welcome. Have a good show. Okay. Bye for now. And everybody stay tuned. Well, that's our roundtable for this week. Many thanks to Mildred Lynn McDonald and participants Deb and John Carousella and Heisey Lutmers. We hope you found this roundtable discussion engaging and thought-provoking. If you would like to join the conversation, visit facebook.com slash fireflywillows and add your comment under this week's roundtable post. Stay tuned. back. This is Mildred Lynn McDonald, and I'm your host for Healing Conversations, live from Sebastopol, California. We hope that you're enjoying the show. Do you love yourself? Have you ever thought about the connection between self-love and healing? Do you feel that you have a safe place in your life to do your inner work? If you're questioning yourself and feel intrigued to learn more, you'll love our conversation with Robin White Turtle Linz. Robin is an artist, an energy healer, and author of five books, including The Handbook to Heart Path, An Energy Medicine Guide, and The Poems for the Lost Deer. Since birth, Robin has been able to see energy fields and spiritual presences that live around us. She teaches self-love through guided imagery, as well as scanning the energy field, and supports transformation through feedback, support, and energy healing. Her intuitive and mediumistic skills help people come home to the present moment, letting go of the past to embrace their lives more fully. She's worked at California's popular East-West Bookshop, since 2007 as a reader and an energy healer. 
and has a private practice called the Center for the Soul in the San Francisco Bay Area. So without further ado, let's beam over to Santa Cruz, California, and welcome Robin to the show. Hello, Robin. Are you there? I am. Hi, Mildred Lynn. So nice to talk to you. Now, I want to jump right in here. And I've had a lot of interest when I told people that you were going to be on the show and we were going to talk about self-love and healing and the connection. It really seemed to resonate with people. And I wanted to throw out there just before we get into this, have you found the same thing when you tell people, this is my area, self-love and healing in a handshake? Do they usually respond to that or have a little story to go with it? Well, often what happens is I don't exactly do it that way. (laughs) The way I work is that I I let people come to talk to me about what's going on for them. And very often when I tell them I teach self-love, they say, well, the first thing they often say is, wow, everybody needs that. You know, we all need that. Where are you teaching it? How are you doing it? How do you teach self-love? I mean, that is the big question that hopefully my last two books, The Heart Path and Heart Path Handbook, have have answered to some extent. I think it's an ongoing question for all of us, though. How do we love ourselves? We know that love Mm -hmm. heals all things. At least we've been told that by, you know, yogis and um, wise people, and Jesus even said that, you know, love heals all things. I found a really exciting quote from Carl Jung that kind of sums it up for me. He said, we do not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. And loving yourself makes the darkness conscious, and then it gives you a way to embrace the darkness in ourselves. And that is the key to self-love. When we love ourselves unconditionally, we are witnessing parts of ourselves without judgment, and with deep compassion. And when we do that, then those parts of ourselves can transform. That's what my work hopefully does for people. Nothing new. I mean, I I didn't invent this. (laughs) It was given to me. And it's given to me through the ages, through the ancients and through the Hindu teachers and Buddhist teachers and Christian teachers. If love heals everything, then how can we apply that in our lives? How can we actually transform through self-love? That's the question I've been living for many years now. Now, on your website, the Center for the Soul website, what you have up there, and this really hit me and it intrigued me, healing always begins with the self. Can you share a little bit of information about that? what that means to you? Yeah, well, for me, what that means is we have to look at ourselves, and this kind of goes on the roundtable you just had uh, about pain. When we're in pain, there isn't anyone out there that's actually caused that pain. You can say, well, so-and-so left me or, or they stabbed me with a knife, and, of course, that's that's a physical wound, or they they plunged a knife into my heart metaphorically. But actually, all of those, all of those things, the pain is ours. How we respond to the pain is our way of responding to it. It isn't anyone else's. 
So you could have 10 people, for instance, that could have a wound, and it could be significant. It could be, you could say, well, you can't really measure pain, but you could say, well, everyone here, these 10 people have been abandoned by something or someone, and they all will have a different response to that abandonment. But if we take the moment and go inside and look at the parts of ourselves that may have created that abandonment in ourselves long before the outer abandonment occurred, we have an opportunity to heal that inner child or the wounded part of ourselves that felt abandoned. And then we would also recognize in the outer world that the people that might choose to do that with us, you know, so so we can be better prepared not to have that happen again, but then also we're recognizing the shifts we need to make in ourselves that will help us support that child in us or the teenager in us that had felt abandoned that was getting reactivated by the present time abandonment. Does that make sense? There's an accident and you have... Ten people who observed the accident, but they might have ten different versions of what happened based on themselves, right? Their subjective filter. Exactly yeah. right. So each of us perceives the world differently, and we perceive it depending on how we relate to ourselves. So when we begin with ourselves and take a look at what needs to be healed in ourselves, then we can move in our consciousness differently because we're moving from the inside out and we can witness what we're really doing here, Mildred Lynn, is we're developing the witness self. And as we develop the witness, that's the part of us, that's a God consciousness part of us that can embrace all the rest of it. That's what all the rest of it needs to surrender to is that unconditionally loving aspect of our being. So as we're doing that with ourselves, as we love ourselves, what we're doing is we're inviting those aspects to let go of their stance or their belief system or what it is that they came to feel after the last wounding (laughs) so they can release it and come and be a part of the loving being that they really are. They come into their authentic self. You said that it was very important to have a safe place to do healing work. And what I wanted to ask you is, number one, why is it so important? And what would be an example of safe places or a safe place? Well, there's so much emotional wounding in the world with, you know, if you think of just statistically, one of four women have been sexually abused in their childhood, one out of five men. And if you just think of that, that's almost a quarter of the population has had that particular wound. Now, that doesn't mean there haven't been other kinds of wounding. <laughs> so everybody's had a lot of wounding here in our lives at some point in order for us to help ourselves heal. So a safe place gives a person an opportunity. I mean, I try to create that instantly when people walk in my office. I try to give them a sense that they are safe, I'm I'm not going to harm them, and that they're also emotionally, like anything that goes on for them, anything that they feel is safely disclosed without judgment or without any kind of um, criticism. 
you know, I learned this when I was a massage therapist because I used to work at the Claremont Spa up in Oakland, and I had uh, often had a schedule that was packed, like one client after the other, and sometimes in one in one case I had nine half-hour sessions like back to back to back to back to back. And I had to, within two minutes or within the first minute, I had to make that place in the massage room safe and comfortable so that the person could relax, even though my schedule was crazy. I had to step into a place with my voice, with the sounds that were around, with the music, with my touch that would allow people to instantly relax. For me, it was like a challenge that uh, I learned through that particular practice massage. But I think it translates to any therapy or any therapeutic setting to allow for the safety of the space, the emotional safety of it, to be palpable. It happens not only through touch or through, in a therapeutic setting, you wouldn't be necessarily touching anybody, but you would be supporting them by welcoming them, by being friendly, by introducing yourself, by shaking their hand, by saying, you know, welcome, you know, how can I help you? And then withholding any judgments that you might have, you know, not having the judgments be what you're evaluating them with. You're you're not really evaluating, you're just being present with them. And when you're being present in a deep way, they feel your unconditional love for them. And then they can relax into the unconditional love of themselves. And that is a key, I think, to the healing work I do. If a person's out there and they're listening to what you're sharing and they're saying, wow, I'd like to interact with Robin, I wonder if I have any safe places, safe healing places in my life right now that I don't even recognize. So I'd love to ask you, Robin, if a person is asking themselves that question, like, do I already have safe healing places in my life? So anything like that come up for you in your experience? Yeah, I mean, I think that people don't think about creating a safe place in their own homes. You know, they think about bedrooms and living rooms and and uh, TV rooms and recreational rooms, but we don't always have a safe, like, meditation room or a place where we can just be quiet and, and listen to ourselves. And sometimes that can be in a bedroom or it can be in a part of a garage that's uh, cleaned out and um, made beautiful by with flowers or candles. Or it can be in a closet. I, I had a friend that had a big walk-in closet. And, you know, uh, unlike most houses, she had too much space. And so she cleared the, the closet out and she made it into a meditation room. And uh, it was a big old house, you know. So, and, and it was also big enough to hold a couple of people. So sometimes she would have meditation groups in the closet. <laughs> and it sounded funny, but it really was great because it was very quiet. She had flowers in there. There was a window in the closet, so there was light that came in. It was a beautiful, and she had candles in there. It was a beautiful little space. So when I talk to people about creating a safe place, I said, you know, all you need is maybe a place where you can have a candle and some flowers and, um, you know, symbols that might mean something to you where you could sit and meditate. And maybe it's a corner of a room somewhere or a bedroom uh, part of the bedroom or part of a den or something that would be just uh, marked out for your 
safety for your, you know, as yours or as a group room. I've been in houses where we've had a meditation room with the other participants that lived in the house, and that was for all of us. And when we went in there, we went, we're silent, we could sit and meditate, we could be with ourselves, we could cry, we could do whatever we needed to do. So I try to create safety for myself wherever I go, <laughs> emotional safety, and try to have that in my house. Artwork to me is a, a great way to have beauty around me and safety. You know, so that's one way I do it for myself. I love that because it's almost like a division of a person putting lists together of what they're looking for in their new home. Three bedrooms, the bathroom, the kitchen, a safe healing place, a garage, a, you know, storage area. Wouldn't that be wonderful if that became yeah, part of our verbiage? Absolutely. And it, it can be incorporated into whatever rooms are already there. It's not like you have to create a whole new room. But um, I know in my living room, for instance, I have a really small apartment and I have bookshelves, and I have created the bookshelves so that I I have a nook, and that's where I have my my altar. And I have, you know, candles there and um, a tonka, and I have little sculptures that mean stuff to me. And uh, that's that's what I've created as my altar. And it's just really like a three-foot or two-foot by three-foot space. But it's adequate enough for me to feel like that's the center of my home, and that's what I want to center myself every day is is in that little space. So, yeah, depending on how many kids you have and family and chaos around <laughs> and dogs and, kids and stuff like that, you know, you you have to find that safe place. I mean, some people find it in their gardens. You know, I, I have yeah. a, an elderly friend who just passed away, and she used to sit in her garden and pray. And that was, you know, she, after she dug in the earth, she'd sit in a chair and then she would, she would just sit and pray. That was her. That was her temple, and uh, she made it a beautiful temple. So sometimes it's outside. No, it's not inside. You said the most important aspect of your service with the client is to empower them. That's yes. the most important aspect of your work. And I'm wondering, how can you tell if a person is becoming empowered or how does this express itself? And the reason I'm asking is because I know that you've worked with so many people that you might have some thoughts on this. Yeah. Well, what I try to do is have everyone leave with tools that they can use to help themselves in the future. So, for instance, if um, someone comes to me with a, uh, a person that's passed away and they're really mourning that person, I try to give them ways to calm themselves, ways to uh, uh, tune in and connect through a candle, through an altar, through some kind of way that they can do this at home. They can get quiet and listen to their hearts. And and it's through our hearts that we can connect with the loved ones that have passed away as well as, you know, our families that are present in bodies. Um, so... Or if someone is working on themselves, I give them the heart path process that I uh, developed with my guides that can help them get in touch with themselves and love themselves. And that can really make a huge difference for people to have some tools. And I've had clients leave, come back maybe a year later, and they say, you know, I've been using that heart path, and it's just amazing how I've grown and integrated parts of myself, you know. 
and other people just use it in the session and they never use it again. But but I tried to make sure that people know that they can have tools to help themselves because the biggest mythology that we have is that we have to either be a victim or a perpetrator. We have we have that so rampant in our culture that we're either victims or perpetrators, and you get it reinforced all the time in the news. And the truth is, that isn't true. We are neither. It's only one relationship, victim-perpetrator, of of hundreds of other ways of relating to each other. We, but we have somehow latched onto it through news media and, you know, the hyper um, excitement that the news media likes to have. They They like to look for the victim and the perpetrator. Okay, so what's the black and white story here? Well, the story isn't always black and white. <laughs> and if we if we maintain that thread of victim perpetrator in our consciousness, then we continue on that path and that, explore that relationship. But it's only one of many hundreds of. So if we have the opportunity to have a tool that will help us look at our the part of us that wants to be a victim or wants to perpetrate on others, then we can start to witness oh, there's that pattern again. We can see it as a pattern. We don't have to keep playing it, or we don't have to keep running that record over and over again. And it really helps people break that pattern. So I make sure that people have the tools they need before they leave my office to to succeed on their own without my help. Of course, they can come back and get tune-ups, and if they get stuck or they're going through a really hard time, I welcome them back. But uh, I want people to know that they can do this for themselves. And and I feel like um, uh, in my work with, you know, psychic and intuitive work, it's easy to ha- create dependency. And I don't like dependency. <laughs> so I want to be able to serve them to the highest, their highest and wisest good and my highest and wisest good, and that is to give them tools. I know myself when I went through a stage in my life and I was doing coaching, and I was amazed because people were really attracted to animal totems. And that turned out to be a really powerful and empowering tool that I had available to provide a new perspective for their consideration. So basically, they were fascinated by the animal totem concept. They loved the medicine, which would be the message that was communicated. And then they were able to action that out in the world and look for little messages. What have you found are the most appealing or relevant tools that people tend to gravitate toward? Yeah. Well, I find, I find like, working um, – one of the things that the Heart Path process does is it, help, it helps to bring in and get people connected with their animal nature. And um, so that's one way that it helps. I, I, I see so many different kinds of people for different reasons. I find there's a, there's a group of people that really want to get connected with shamanism. And so through the through Heart Path, I can help them connect to a way of doing shamanism that doesn't um doesn't require them to leave their bodies. It helps them stay embodied and it also helps them to heal the parts that are broken off or forgotten. And they can do it while they're in their bodies. They don't have to travel to another dimension. So there's maybe, I would say, a third of the people that I work with are interested in that. And they're also interested in their animal nature, so they're power animals. I would say about a third of the people are are interested in uh, healing themselves and, you know, really focused on self-healing. 
And then I would say about a third, maybe a third, sixth of the people um, are looking for, maybe a sixth of the people are looking for straight-up readings about this person or that person or their relationships or that kind of thing. And maybe the other little sixth is are, are people that are just needing information, straight-up information about like a relative that's passed or uh, information about something in their lives that they're not necessarily doing healing work on terms of going inside themselves, but they are getting healing by uh, completing their relationship with their family member or something like that. So uh, maybe they had a sudden death and, and the person died very suddenly and they can't, um, they didn't get to say goodbye. This offers them a chance. You know, I could get somebody tomorrow that would be not in any of those categories. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. <laughs> but I find that what's really so valuable about your expertise combined with your research capabilities combined with your beautiful gifts is that you have a lifetime of wisdom and of observation through being the witness. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think it's probably the most important part of ourselves that we can develop. Um, And I think that what's great about HeartPath is that it gives people an opportunity to recognize their their observer nature or their high self. It has so many different names, you know, their, their authentic nature. They can recognize it, and then they can also recognize all the other and witness all the other aspects of themselves that they might identify with more. Some people identify with being a child. Some people identify with being uh, masculine or feminine, you know, more one side of themselves more than the others. So maybe they identify more with an animal. Um, I have, I've had people identify with all of those different things. But really when we talk about spiritual evolution, the real shift that we're trying to attain is a shift in identity but from the aspects of ourselves that are not universal or not all-encompassing to the all-encompassing aspect of ourselves. It's hard for humans to understand that we are everything, that we're connected to everything. You know, the, the seas run through us, the, the oceans and the rivers and the mountains, we're all, that's all part of who we are. We're part of the whole sea of consciousness. And, you know, we're swimming around like little fish, and then all of a sudden you get an awareness that you're, just, you're not just the fish, you're the whole ocean. <laughs> You know, that is the shift, that's the shift in consciousness that we're all going through right now. And the observer is the ocean. The witness is the ocean. It's what holds us. It's, it's the substance of the universe. And once we identify with that, then we can heal the aspects of ourselves by embracing them and loving them, and they start to surrender into that un- unconditionally loving part of who we are. Um, and then that part gets bigger and it gets more loving and it gets more compassionate. And you drop your judgments, which really helps uh, helps being in the world <laughs> to not be so judgmental. <laughs> We're all judgmental on some level, but it's really helpful to drop judgments. It's like it, it creates so much pain for people. I remember when you're talking about realizing that we are the ocean and the ocean is us. I remember when I left the high-tech industry to follow my heart. I had no idea where my heart was going, but I knew I wanted to follow my heart. It ended up 
to be into the world of energy work and alternative medicine. That's where my heart was going anyway. It took a little bit of time for Mildred to catch up. I remember that I made a promise to myself that no matter what, uh, my higher self, and I didn't even know what a higher self was, I just felt it, it was a knowing, would never let me down. And that gave me the centeredness and the strength to go forward. And I'm, as I'm listening to you speak, I'm also recalling the letting go of judgments. So almost when you're in that space, judgments just don't stick. <laughs> they just, there's right. almost no place to put them. <laughs> well, that's right, because we're all human. I mean, we're all humans having this spiritual experience. We're trying to understand and put together the world. And I, I just see us all as like aspects of God, you know, uh, when I see a new person come in, you know, part of the creating safety is is witnessing. Oh, here's another aspect of God. How curious! How interesting! What you know? What's their life about? You know? And when I approach them with that curiosity and that innocence, then all things can be revealed and be possible with them. You know, the, there's no limit to the healing, and uh, and that's always an amazing thing. I. I started this work probably 20 years ago, and uh, Mildred Lynn. And when I first started it, you know, you could work with past lives, you could do, you know, a healing thing, and you might do one of those things in a whole hour session. Today, people are moving so quickly through their issues. It's as if we've accelerated probably tenfold. And uh, in one session I had yesterday, for instance, a woman was was working through. Um, emotional stuff that had been locked in her system and she went through four very big traumatic experiences that she had one after the other and she was able to really release them and that was a tremendous healing because she was storing them in her fat cells (laughs) and she really needs to lose weight because it's, it's it's critical for her health her heart, you know, stressing her heart and her lungs and everything. And so she recognized that she had been storing all this emotional stuff in her in her belly and she could let it go. And that, I said, now you're going to be able to lose weight more easily. And, and because you don't have to protect these children that you've, you know, these childhood incidents that occurred and that were so traumatic for you. And so it's, it's really amazing to watch the process with people. You know, she came in with one issue, and what we ended up doing is emotional release on another level, and that's going to actually help her weight loss. You see, so it it it, it just all connected, <laughs> and I find that fascinating. Now, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about: you have published five books, a yeah. substantial amount of information. Could you share with our listeners? the names of these books and just give them a little overview and then I want to dive in a little bit more with specific books. Yeah. Well, my first book was Dancing Up the Moon and it was uh, from my master's uh, degree that I had through Holy Names College with Matt Fox's program. And it, uh, the book, Dancing Up the Moon, was focused on uh, rites of passage. And I started with adolescent passages, but soon the book became the transitions that we have in our everyday lives. And so I ended up with 32 different rituals from uh, menopause to job change to moving to 
um, all different kinds of translation transitions, um, trying to have a new relationship, um, uh, you know, drawing in um, a, a new partner, uh, going through surgery, and there were just all kinds of different and adolescent passages, which was the, kind of the heart of the book. But that was the first book. The second book was called Sacred Living, and um, both of these books were published by Canary Press. And Sacred Living or Living a Sacred Life was 365 Meditations and Celebrations. And what that book did is it it gave you a daily word that you could contemplate. Um, So it was a great meditation tool. And then it also had um, everything from recipes to rituals that were done internationally around the world. And then it also took some of the ideas from my first book and um, we put them in a you know, a uh, uh, calendar year. So it started with winter solstice and went into spring equinox and summer solstice and fall equinox and and and, and followed the seasons around. Um, so that was sacred living. And then uh, my next book was Heart Path, uh, and that's learning to love yourself and listening to your guides. And that came out of uh, six years of classes with the Center for the Soul that I had in my home, uh, and I was able to to teach classes at night or in the in the daytime and um, record the classes, and I was channeling. I had learned to channel through the Umbanda tradition in Brazil, and also witnessing Native American spiritual dances um, in South Dakota and in uh, northern Wisconsin. So, the experiences I had in those dances helped me to understand that there's a, you know, we're just in one plane of existence here, (laughs) but there's a whole other reality on the other side, and there's guides, and there's helpers, and there's support, and so HeartPath was a process of learning about that through the classes, and then taking the essence of the classes and and making it into HeartPath, the HeartPath book. And all was teaching self-love. All of the information we had focused on self-love. And so my guide, Wulan, was my teacher and helper, and he's still very much around and is very supportive. Um, Then the next book, uh, the last two books I've done really in quick sequence, I also have a CD that I published that was a HeartPath CD, so I have that as well. And then the next book was HeartPath Handbook, and that was completed as a requirement for my Ph.D. in energy medicine. And uh, that is a book that teaches practitioners how to use the HeartPath process. So people that come to me, I do this process, the HeartPath process, and it's so versatile. It can be used in so many different ways that I thought, you know, it's time to start teaching other people how to use this and how to witness with energy and teach energy medicine. So this this next year, I'm going to start um, classes on um, uh, energy medicine and the heart path process uh, in teleseminars. And so I'm going to be doing that starting probably in January. I'll be rounding them up for you, Robin. <laughs> oh, great, great. I'd love to have it. Well, it's exciting for me because I really want to pass the process and, and expand the process to other people because I feel like, it's so versatile and it's so helpful and the questions that I've developed, you know, they're endlessly different for each person, but the, the basic questions of that I use with people in the process are so helpful. 
and there, I find myself repeating the same ones, um, not all the time, but, but, but often the same ones. You know, how old is this aspect? Uh, what happened? You know, tell, tell me the story, what, what went on at that time? You know, so, oh, I see that, that aspect was in a trauma between your parents or in a push-pull between parents at age seven or eight, and um, they didn't feel safe. And, you know, so, so there's lots of uh, questions that have developed. So Heart Path Handbook is a guide for teachers, for he- therapists and healers to use this for other people. And then, um, and it's also useful for those working on themselves because it goes deeply into the archetypes and into different aspects of ourselves. And then the last book is um, called Poems for the Lost Year, and it's my first poetry book. Uh, one of my passions is writing poetry, and I've uh, got a master's in that, and this was uh, from my MFA process from Mills College. The, the Poems for the Lost Year is a look at our culture through the lens of an incident that occurred in Marin County where the National Park Service um, eliminated uh, 1,050 deer that were considered invasive species. So it looks at race, it looks at our cultural foibles through the lens of this incident, and it helps to... It doesn't exactly make sense out of it, but it 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 takes a look at the wound in our culture of eliminating things rather than uh, dealing with them. <laughs> and we have kind of a cowboy mentality when it comes to the creatures, our animals, and these animals were sacred, and there was no consciousness on the park service that these deer were were like holy deer. Um, they were. There were different colors, but and they were brought by us to this country from the zoo, and um, they had been assigned for me that I should be a writer at one point. And so they were very important to me, and it was kind of like knowing that the deer were up there was like, oh, I can always go back and visit the deer. Well, then they eliminated them, and there was about 80% of the population that was against this, but uh, Poem to the Lost Deer explores in poetic form with picture poems and all kinds of things, uh, this incident. And it it indicts our culture to look at Native sensibilities, Native American sensibilities against Western culture. Like in, in Native American traditions, they believe that everything is sacred, which is the same as the Hindu philosophy. <laughs> everything is sacred. Everything is beautiful. Everything's part of God. And in Western culture, we see things as disposable. Humans are disposable. Jobs are disposable. Animals are disposable. And and that philosophy has to get confronted before it can change. And so this is my bid to change the consciousness of that particular thread of our culture we're going to go to a little musical break and I don't know if this is possible or not do you have the poems for the lost year close to you and if you do would you do us the honor of reading us one of the poems oh love to sure mm-hmm. okay okay so let's go to a little break we're going to be listening to Dolores Boudreau from Nova Scotia Canada she is a fabulous singer songwriter. She's very upbeat, a very spiritual person. I love Dolores. And that will be about two minutes. Then we'll come back 
with Robin and will enjoy a poem, a special poem from her beautiful and tender book, Poems from the Lost Deer. So we'll be right back. listening to Healing Conversations with host Mildred Lynn McDonald on Firefly Willows LIVE. Find out more at fireflywillows.com. Enjoy the show. And we're back. Are you there, Robin? I am. I'm right here. <laughs> Excellent. Wanted to share with anybody who has just joined us that we have the good fortune to speak with Robin White Turtle Lynn's today. And she's going to honor the moment by reading a poem from her beautiful book, Poems for the Lost Stare. So I'm going to hand that over to you, Robin. Hard to pick one, but I've got a couple of them here. Let's see. Um, This one is in the center of the book, uh, and uh, it's, it's got no title, but the first line is the title. To find our lost deer, reach inside. Return to your own garden. Grief takes the time it takes, each in our own way. The whole story is there from all times. It is a trick, a lie, a a twist we bought. Each one of us is recovering the soul of humanity. Listen. Release all fear. Nothing more to lose. You stop them. There are a few left. This is some sort of victory. What will you do to prevent a repeat of history? I love that. Read another one. Okay, I'd be happy to. Please. (laughs) So this is, uh, this one is, um, The deer on this canvas appear when I look at those green winter hills, soon to be painted midnight blue. 
Brush marks will be thick and their seven bodies will be floating away. Though as I paint them, I know hardly any are still alive today to wander as they once did foraging on the next ridge. Now in my painting to honor them, these seven white deer graze on a billion stars. And there were seven white deer. That they were the deer. Seven white ones. Yeah. Well, I have a um, in the beginning of the book. That's at the end of the book, and this is the beginning of the book. I tell the story in a in a short poem here, and it has a picture of the seven deer grazing on the hill. I tucked a tuft into my hat laying down strands of hair in exchange. An old Indian song rose up from my throat, Palamyeo, Palamyeo, thank you, thank you, creator, Wankantanka, Pokaheya, Chewakielo. Tufts of their fur lay at my feet. Seven white deer appear grazing on a hillside. An apparition, their presence answers, their gaze at me, going back to grazing, just after asking for a sign, is riding my path. After fasting for two days, walking those hills, rounding the corner of a yellow trail. I hope you're going to put these poems on CD. Well, that's a good idea. <laughs> Maybe that's my next <laughs> As I'm listening to your poetry, it creates truly a sacred and, and healing place. So I, I well, just thought, well, okay, well, let's put them on a CD because they're almost mesmerizing. Oh, uh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, well, um, can I read a signature poem and then I'll, of I'll, course. I'll close with that? Okay, so toward the end of the book. And it's a signature poem. I have broadsides uh, that I made up for this that are like large, and they have deer um, uh, stenciled on the sides. This is called Lament for the Deer People. Shining in the inky firmament, no longer the deer child once carried, no longer a womb-bound, earth-tied star, no longer here. You were once a dream, a living moon, a sea of white deer pouring over dark hillsides. Moon of glowing sky, falling over fields and green hills. A river herd of blue bones. A tide given back to the turquoise sea, always shining beyond the storm-ruined sky. Well, as you're reading that, I'm, what's coming to my mind is gentle drum beats in the background with some beautiful chimes blowing in the wind and the person to help you with this is High C. Lutimers, who is the whiz kid for <laughs> special effects. So I'm going to volunteer High C <laughs> to help you with this poem for the last year C D. <laughs> oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Well the you know, one of the things this does is it helps people work through grief of I, I liken deer to to women because in historically in literature women and deer were always considered to be the same. They were considered similar creatures. And uh, there's a there's an old Irish ditty that goes uh, down there goes a fellow doe as great with young as she might go, 
And I, I actually use that as a kind of a connecting with literature and the history of literature with women and deer. So part of what I felt this was that the, the uh, park district did was it actually was uh, a last bastion of, you know, um, using masculine power against the feminine process. And so that's in here too. That's in this book and woven in it. And so there's a lot of grief of what the patriarchy has done in our cultural foibles and how we need to stop and look at uh, uh, integrating the feminine as sacred part of the culture. Uh, Just like masculine, sacred masculine has been lost touch with and now we're reclaiming that and so even though we're losing it's about loss and it's about loss of these beautiful deer also hopeful because it's about how we can reclaim a culture that is more compatible with compassion and love and healing and and that certainly uh was true in many native cultures they had a way to feel connected with all that is they felt connected with all that is. They felt one with all that is. And there's ceremonies that I've gone through and been a part of speak to that. So I'm trying to translate some of those values into Western culture so that we can stop doing what we do <laughs> and do something different. Yeah, I like that. I wanted to go back. You mentioned your Heart Path book, An Energy Medicine Guide for Therapists and Healers. And what I wanted to ask you was, what do you feel the pressing need to create this? Why did you make this book, and what need does it fill? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I think that it fills the need to actually, first of all, help therapists and healers recognize their own self-love is very critical to the healing of other people. That's the first thing. And the second thing is to find a way to help people learn self-love, not just through my work, but through anyone's work. So that that if we're not focused on self-love, really, what are we focused on? So it helps to kind of bring the idea of healing into focus through loving ourselves and loving others. And so so it, it, teaching self-love really helps the whole culture. And it also is a way that we can heal any kind of wound that we've ever had, physical, mental, spiritual, emotional. You can heal with self-love. Now, if you cut yourself, you're going to, you know, and it's deep enough, you have to go to the emergency room and get it sewn up. There's no question about that. You wouldn't want to sit there and love it, love it to healing. <laughs> you know, like the way you would you could handle that is by loving yourself enough to take care of the wound, Okay. But what I'm talking about are uh, emotional wounds and ways that we keep injuring ourselves. If we can stop and take a look at those wounds, this book can really help us understand the aspects of our brains and bodies that are embodied in, you know, the different five archetypes that I use a lot and the the mother, the child, the, the animal nature, the high self, the father nature, mother, father, child, animal nature, and high self, those five archetypes. and um, But they're not really, in the heart path process, they're not really archetypes. They go deeper than that. They're actually aspects of our brains and bodies. So the an- animal nature corresponds to our back brain or our brain stem, our fight and flight 
ways of operating. The child nature is the part of our creative uh, brain. The right and left hemispheres, masculine and feminine, and the corpus callosum, the magnificent part in the middle, is really where our high self uh, embraces all of the aspects of our being. So we, I relate it to the physical aspects, the chakras into the physical aspects of our organs and so on. And so I go into that in the book. It helps us get a better understanding of ourselves all the way around. And if, if we get a better understanding of ourselves, we can also then begin to be more compassionate with ourselves. And if we can be compassionate, then we can transform ourselves into the love that we are and become and touch our authentic nature. I think that's basically what the book is trying to do. And I feel compelled. I mean, this is the work I've been given to teach others. I'm grateful for it because it's healed me. <laughs> it's done a lot of mm-hmm. healing for me. And not to say that I'm done with my healing, but I've been able to transcend the the many of the issues that I've had uh, that I came into this life with or that I acquired over time, and um, I'm really grateful for that. It's given it's given me really solid tools that I use over and over and over again, and they help me heal. And so, you know, I I worked for about 15 years on this with just myself and a few people, and then started teaching it before. Uh, before I started teaching it. And so I knew that it worked. You know, I knew that it worked for me. If it could work for me, it could work for anybody. And if it could work for a few of other people that I was working with, it could work for more people. And so that's when I started teaching classes. And then after the classes, the books came. And so I I just feel like uh, it's got to get out there in a bigger way now. And, and the rest of my time on this planet is going to be finding ways to get it out there, get that information out there and uh, help people heal. I'm going to go to a beautiful little song called Both Sides of the Tweed. It is a healing song. I think you'll like this. It's only about a minute long or something like that. But when you come back, what I'd like to, to find out is what's up for you next year. And then to sign up, is there any pressing message or encouragement that you could offer our listeners that they could wrap in a bow and take away with them on the Sunday afternoon. So how does that sound? Yeah, sounds good. Sounds good? Okay, we'll be back in just a minute. listening to Healing Conversations with host Mildred Lynn McDonald. 
on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at fireflywillows.com. Enjoy the show. And we're back again. Are you there, Robin? <laughs> Hi, Mildred. <Lynn. laughs> I sound so excited to hear from you, don't I? Because <laughs> I am. <laughs> so listen, what is coming up for you next year other than your CD of poems with special effects by Hasi Lutimers? We just recruited it. And your teleclass, and tell us some more about that. What else is on the go? I'm going to be doing more speaking engagements. Uh, I'm uh, going to be uh, reading my poetry at different um, poetry readings, as well as trying to get, I'm I'm getting, um, I'm really interested in speaking for psychological associations, uh, different um, professional organizations, so I can get the word out about self-love and healing. And um, another thing I'm going to be doing, and then I'm also going to be making uh, trying to have an art show. I'm, I'm excited about um, using my artwork as a vehicle to get uh, the word out about healing because I'm, I'm doing artworks that talk about consciousness and that are statements about grace and love and uh, how we can feel the, the beauty of the universe around us. And uh, so I'll be doing all of that. And uh, the teleseminars, they could go to my website, um, the center www.thecenterforthesoul.com, and uh, that has information and contact information. I'll be posting when the teleseminars are going to happen, and some of those teleseminars may evolve into a, a, a workshop or two. I'm going to be speaking at East West Bookshop uh, probably in April or May having an art show there possibly. So we're working on a lot of different things that are going to go on here. So, And if someone was really intrigued by your books? They can go to the centerforthesoul.com for the books, or they can also go to bluebonebooks.com. These books have been published by Bluebone Books. And so Bluebone Books, they have I have all my books there with descriptions, and um, they can get them uh, on that website as well. So... Either website, the center for the soul dot com or bluebonebooks.com. Anything that you feel that's pressing that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, they could carry it away with them. <laughs> okay. Well let me give them a little inspiration. This is from my poem Heart Path Handbook. I mean this is from my book, Heart Path Handbook, and it's a poem called Harvest that I start chapter two with. Harvest. Sit in the garden of roses and thorns. Take a moment to soak in your own sun. Feel your own longing drawing you into its fragrance. The universe is continually expanding. We are the ones contracted. This field of ripe grain is ready for bread. Beautiful, Robin. I love that the universe is expanding. We are the ones that are contracting. Yes. <laughs> time, time to get with the program. <laughs> well, when we notice our contractions, then we can hold them until they can release. And that's yeah. what self-love does. That's really what self-love does. It gives us an opportunity to release where we're contracted. Such an important piece of healing in general, you know. 
And Robin, did you want to share with our listeners that you have a blog talk radio show? Oh, I almost forgot. About it. <laughs> by the way, I have a blog, by the way, yeah, I'm part of Firefly Willows, and I have a blog talk radio show called Evolve. And Evolve looks at con- what's new in consciousness and the arts. Um, I'm an artist and an author, as, and so I'm really keen on how. Uh, the arts can help us transform uh, our consciousness. I know it certainly works for me, and I see other artists doing the same thing. And I, I think it's a real growing edge of evolution today. So Evolve really explores all of that, and it, it highlights different people that are working in that way um, through through the arts and consciousness. So I'm really excited to present the different guests that I have there. So, yeah, and that happens the first, uh, the third Thursday of the month at 2 p.m., but you can go to uh, Blog Talk Radio, Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, and look under the show Evolve, and that's my show. And you can look and download other podcasts of uh, the radio show from that website. So, yeah, yeah thanks, like Millicent. You're welcome. And that's like the show today, if you'd like to- what Robin had to share, and I know everybody has someone in their life, if not themselves, who would benefit from a a healing message about self-love, you can listen to this episode or any other episode through the Blog Talk Radio archives. So let's keep that energy, let's keep that positive energy moving throughout the universe. And that's one of the big reasons that we all do these shows, to provide a platform for people who have a healing message to share. And we can get that out there for for people's consideration. It's all good. Right. It's all good. Yeah. <laughs> and Robin, the, the last thing, the last thing before we sign off, would you entertain the idea of coming back on the show next year to fill us in on any more books or artistic endeavors or the teleclasses or the CD of poetry? I'd, We'd love to have you back. I'd love, I'd love to do that. Of course, I'd be happy to be a guest again. It was. Just a pleasure talking to you, Mildred Lynn, and I'm so excited to talk about healing and how we can do it through different venues, whether it's through meditation or the arts or poetry. So I'd be more than happy to. You bet. All right. (laughs) So we're going to sign off for today. Our special guest is Robin White Turtle Lynn, and she's located in beautiful Santa Cruz, California. Robin, give us your website one more time. Yeah, it's uh, www.thecenterforthesoul.com and bluebonebooks.com. Excellent. So have a wonderful day, Robin. Thank you very much, and let's enjoy this ending song together. Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Carousella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for What's Your Prescription for Balance with Dr. Glenna Calder, Thursday morning at 8 a.m.